again, that testifies to a lost navigational skill. Graham Hancock on Joe Rogan experience. It a long time for them to figure out what that even is. What do they think that is now? Um, it, it tracks the movements of the planets. It's a it's a navigational device. It's uh, it, 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 it's a geared system that allows you to track the passage of time and figure out where you are. It's a, it's some kind of navigational device. It's not fully understood. And how navigating the stars. I think that goes back to Greek times. I'm guessing here because Greek times are not of great interest to me. But I'm thinking around about 500 BC. So at least 2,000 years old, 2,000 plus, and we know that there had to be more than one person. Yes, it, 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 you, can't, you can't have something like that without, without a vast effort behind it. Yeah. Uh, human beings were working on creating this geared and cogged machinery uh, that, that reflected the patterns. Oh, is that a recreation that's of a, it? That's a recreation wow. of something like that. Yeah. Um, can you buy one of those? Uh, wait, 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 <laughs> it looks like you That's so cool. Dude, find bookmark that. We need one right there, right next to the plasticels. So such a thing is a is a cultural artifact which yeah. doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It has right. it has to have a context. It has to have a background. And again, my suggestion would be perhaps a secret technology. It's very odd that very few of these have been found, and it may be that ship owners and navigators in Greek times were extremely okay. careful Destroy. about who they shared this technology oh, with. Of course. It, 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 uh, they they may, hidden, may have been as top away. secret as you know, nuclear Private power in, 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 in our world today. Oh, that makes sense. But the fact is that then we have to, we, it exists, it's real, it's there, yeah. and then we must consider what's behind it. What, what led to that? Is that just the latest manifestation of something that, that goes much more deeply back into human, human culture? And I, I think that is. I think, I suppose my main, my main message is that we have a so far untold backstory, that we're concentrating entirely on the front story, mm -hmm. and the backstory is missing, it's very largely missing from the picture, and what I've tried to do is to fill in bits of the backstory. Do you have anything in this book about the omens? No, not really. Um, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned them briefly. Uh, I explored the Olmec mystery uh, in considerable depth. Can you explain that to people? Maybe in fingerprints of the gods. Uh, yes. So it's considered to be the earliest high culture of Central America. Everybody's heard about the Aztecs. Everybody's heard about the Maya. But before the Aztecs and before the Maya, there were a culture who are referred to as the Olmecs. Again, we don't know what they called themselves. That's what the Aztecs called them. They called them the Olmecs. It means the rubber people because they that uh, rubber producing area of uh, of Mexico. They worked in uh, giant megalithic constructions. That what they're most famous for is these huge carved human heads, uh, which can be on a scale of up to 20 to 25 tons uh, in weight, uh, and and which have curious features which have been interpreted variously as Polynesian, African, don't look like classic uh, Native American features. But one of the things, one of the things I've realized is that there is no classic Native American feature. That, that Na Native Americans are uh, a very, have a very complex genetic story with very many different elements uh, brought into it and we shouldn't be necessarily surprised by the supposedly non-Native American look. Uh, so, of these on the head. Uh, what, what do we think those helmets were that they were wearing? 
nobody knows because no physical example of such a helmet has ever been found just like no physical example of an egyptian pharaoh's helmet a crown has, has ever been found all we see is the stone the stone reproductions of them do they universally wear these helmets in these they all they, they pretty much all wear these helmets in 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 the olmec uh, stonework there's another fascinating uh, figure from uh, la benta one of, one of the uh, Olmec sites, which is the earliest ever image of a plumed or feathered serpent. Mm. The feathered serpent is a famous icon in Central America. Quetzalcoatl, who's the, the god of peace, the bringer of civilization, who is associated, for example, with the famous um, pyramid of, of Kukulkan, which is just another name for Quetzalcoatl at Chichen Itza, where on the spring equinox, a, a shadow effect creates the image of a serpent coiling down the stairway and joining with the carved head of the serpent. But there's the, the image from Leventa. That's the earliest image of a plume serpent uh, in the Americas. So, and, and sitting in the middle of it, and I made a big deal out of this, because I think it is a big deal in Magicians of the Gods, sitting in the middle of it is this human figure who's holding this strange bag in his hand. Mm. And it's just a fact that those identical bags are found in ancient Sumer in the hands of individuals who were considered to be civilization bringers and they also show up on pillar 43 at Gobekli Tepe. Uh, I call them man bags uh, and in that case at Gobekli Tepe we know they're at least 11,600 years old so I wonder if we're looking at a sort of badge of office of a group of civilizers who traveled around the world trying to bring back to life a lost civilization and pass down I deploy a concept I in this book that, that means... I actually got from Richard Dawkins. Richard, Richard Dawkins is the author of a book called The Selfish Gene, and he's not one of my favorite people because he's a... I think... Um... Well, it was a, a race of giants. I think like the Anunnaki who went to South America <clears throat> and they they were oppressive to the people maybe they were overthrown and then the people were allowed to continue living with the land and the meek shall inherit the earth right so um, you know, the Mayans apparently ascended, according to some of the information that I, I've been hearing, because of the slab uh, that which is engraved with the Mayan king going back up into space in a in a spaceship. You know, who's on ancient aliens? Anyway, that's what I think. Man. Um, that I think they also had Malaysian and or Indonesian um, features and there's Atlantis was all around the world it was mapped out there were things that they have been spirited away and uh, you know Smithsonian for example taking all the giant skeletons and and you know you know, they, you know they should be they should be held to account Smithsonian you know if you agree 
Call Congress, 202-224-3121. Tell uh, Smithsonian, let us, uh, what was the, what did you learn after collecting all those giant skeletons? You know, they're in the news. What, uh, what did you learn? What did we learn about our history? Now it's our history. It's not your fucking history, just your history. And also, um, you know, as taxpayers, as taxpayers who pay your salary. Uh, we demand some answers. Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth, please. materialist reductionist that he doesn't believe in spirit or, or any mystery in life that we're just accidents of chemistry and, bi and biology he also has no psychedelic experience and he said no i did challenge him at a public yeah. event to to go to go have a dozen sessions of ayahuasca and just still take acid once oh just once <laughs> would be enough but he has an excellent out because uh, and sadly he's had a, he's had a stroke so he has a good excuse for not for, for not doing that but He's a clever man, and one of his concepts that he's introduced into human culture is the concept of the meme. We're all, I think, familiar with that word. Genes are uh, physical reproductive mechanisms. They reproduce themselves down the generations. They replicate, they multiply, they're passed on from one individual to another. Memes are cultural objects, cultural ideas that are passed on and replicate and reproduce themselves. And what I see right across the Americas and right across the old world as well is a set of memes that involve the sky, that involve the ground, that involve geometry, that involve notions of life after death. Uh, and I think the only way to explain these is that they have been inherited from an earlier culture that was in some way connected with the ancestors of all of, these, all of these cultures. I think that's what we're looking at in the Amazon. We're looking at a meme which was deliberately created. Once you mobilize a population to start from... Beautifully argued, comma, articulated, comma, presented with evidence, exclamation point, how refreshing, how refreshing. Listening to Graham Hand talk, talk is like
following the bliss exclamation point keep it coming comma professor i hope to work with you someday comma i am applying to be to work with Gaia, comma, and the ancient civilizations show, comma, maybe a new pilot, question mark, where you as principal researcher go round the world with a team of experts, comma, and assistants, comma, like me, comma, and we do live ass reporting, comma, as well as applying for permits to investigate under the paws of the Sphinx, comma, for example, exclamation point, or the new hall of records that were just found off coast of Florida, comma, Atlantis was discovered <clears throat> recently, exclamation point. I have been Graham Hancock's number one fan <clears throat> for a few decades now. Comma. Strongly recommend everybody watch all those amazing documentaries where Mr. Hancock discovered the underwater civilization off the coast of India. Exclamation point. In one episode. In one Another of his documentaries, comma, he and his lovely wife, Santa, comma, whom I have invited to my eco ranch in the desert southwest, exclamation point, smiley face, 
dash dash. <clears throat> well, they discovered a pyramid off the coast of Japan. Exclamation point. They inspired me to become an underwater archaeologist, comma, and I even got my patty. <clears throat> and applied for the PhD at then my mom died the reverend Tama The best in Taiwan, exclamation point. And when I returned home, comma, I had such a new appreciation for Tucson, Arizona, exclamation point. The deep southwest, exclamation point. This place is amazing and sacred, comma, and I'm absolutely sure that it plays a critical role in human history. Perhaps, comma, Graham, comma, you can help pressure Arizona authorities to allow the public to know. <coughs> about the city of gold, city of light, they found there, city of light. What is in the city of light in the Grand Canyon? Question mark. We deserve to know. Comma, all of us. Periods. And. Comma. We want to know. Exclamation point. This is fucking fascinating. Shit, man.
<laughs> exclamation point very exciting time comma the revelation of what has come before exclamation points better than tv comma man exclamation point lol let's hang out My treats. Um, the guest, this guest, it's a pearl on the pillow. The guest is. together comma or we shall hang separately exclamation points dash Benjamin Franklin let's hang together Always reminded me of set of always reminded me of set of cojones. Rats. Huge geometrical structures. You are also facilitating many other possibilities that an organized population allows. I think that's what happened at Gobekli Tepe. I think that's why they created the megalithic site there, to mobilize the local population of hunter-gatherers, to give them a project to do, to engage them, and in the process of engaging them, to teach them the skills of agriculture, which, were, which, which are fundamental to, to any concept of, of civilization. And it's weird the way agriculture just suddenly appears in, in Gobekli Tepe. And there's huge agricultural mysteries in the Amazon as well. Um, may I share a couple of those please, messages please. with you? Before you do that, though, can you pull up that image uh, from Gobekli Tepe of Pillar, was it Pillar 43, 43, in Enclosure D? I would like to see that, that guy holding that bag. That's, uh, that is really it's, 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 uh, the, the bags are in a row along the top of the pillar. Um, mm. It's Pillar 43 in, in, in Enclosure D at Gobekli Tepe. Is there uh, an image of that online that's available? Oh, okay, here we go. Yeah, there's the yeah. bags. So there's the bags oh, no. in a okay. row in a row along the top. It's the same sort of square-shaped bag with a curved handle that you find on the earliest image. <laughs> of the feathered serpent, and that you find. No, you have to go above that, Jamie. Um, just a little bit higher up the pillar. Those bags, right, yeah. right, right at the top there. 
Um, it's odd that this symbol crops up in, in many different cultures and tends to be associated with What's some kind of... What's the mainstream interpretation of those bags? There is no mainstream interpretation of those bags. Mm. Uh, that's my interpretation of those bags. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, I, which I freely confess, that's how, that's how I read them. I'm intrigued by the anomaly that the similar bag it turns up in the hands of the Quetzalcoatl figure mm. and turns up in Mesopotamia repeatedly um, in, in the hands of the individuals who are called the Apkalu, the, the, the magicians of the gods, the beginning, bringers of civilization. And the plume serpent, Quetzalcoatl was, it's an Aztec god, right? And Quetzalcoatl is an Aztec, is an Aztec god, but, but the Aztecs acquired him from earlier cultures. The very fact that an image of the plumed serpent is given such priority in Olmec culture tells us that that system of ideas was present during Olmec times, which takes us back at least to 1500 BC probably quite a bit earlier than that, whereas the Aztecs are 1500 AD, so there's 3,000 years between yeah. the Aztecs and the Olmecs, and that same system of ideas is running through all of those cultures. And the Mayans had a name for it as well? Kukulkan. And w what do you think that plume serpent was? I think he's, uh, it's very clear from, from the accounts that have survived that what he's associated with are two things in, in particular. One of them, he's a god of peace, he's not a, a war god. Uh, and, the, and the other thing that he's primarily about is, is giving the gifts of civilization. This is what you, you human beings, need to know in order to move on to the next level. Uh, that, is, that is the function and the role of Quetzalcoatl. And it's, there are very similar, we could refer to them as civilizing heroes, who are found in other cultures and other locations. Osiris in Egypt plays that role. Uh, as a bringer of civilization. There's hardly a culture in the ancient world that doesn't remember a time far back in remote prehistory when some kind of supernaturals or advanced human beings, and I prefer the latter, that some kind of advanced human beings were involved in a project to disseminate uh, civilization. I mentioned the Dukan in the Amazon who were big drinkers of, uh, of, of ayahuasca. Uh, the Tucana have a fascinating origin myth. Uh, they say that their the origin myth states specifically that their ancestors were brought to the Amazon. They were brought to the Amazon by a group of supernaturals who included the daughter of the sun and an individual called the Helmsman who steered the serpent canoe in which this settlement mission in the Amazon was, was performed. And what these so-called supernaturals did was they brought the ancestors of Tucano to the Amazon and they showed them the best places to settle, the best places where they, where they might find hunting, the best places where they might create a village, the best places for agriculture, and then they left. Uh, but they left them behind one gift, and that gift was ayahuasca. That's the story of the origin of Tucano. And it sounds to me rather like the other side of the story of that DNA system in the Of these um, uh, people that live in Native Americans, 
that it, they vary widely. Mm. But the Olmecs seem to have very similar features, the thick lips, the yes, wide noses. Why do we think that is? Well, this is part of a, a curious mystery that is not unconnected to Philippine, the genetic Filipino, maybe uh, they were It's Filipino. been known by archaeologists for quite a long time that there are anomalous skulls uh, in parts of Brazil, uh, which appear to show uh, very strongly Polynesian or African features, very much like the features that we see on the on the Olmec heads. And a number of archaeologists who got into trouble with their colleagues for this have used that to argue many years ago, 30, 40 years ago, that, that the settlement story of the Americas is much more complicated uh, than we've you know, than we than we realised, and and what the what the DNA is doing is uh, it's telling us that there was something really weird uh, happened happened with settlement. They, you see, what happened with those um, African or Polynesian looking skulls was that they were tested for DNA uh, when DNA technology was not as advanced as it is today. And what that DNA showed was that they were more closely related to modern Native Americans than they are to any other people in the world. So the notion that there was some connection with Polynesia or Africa was dismissed. But now that we have very firm evidence of an Australasian genetic signal, Australian Aborigines, Papua New Guinea, Melanesians, with those kind of features, now that we have the genetic evidence that, that is found in the Amazon, we have to go back to that old evidence and, and reconsider it. Wow. Yeah, I would love to find out what that is. They've always fascinated me. The, the Omex, it's always been such a strange image, the, the large heads with mm. the helmets on them and how... Do they universally look like that? I mean, they, all the all of the features are very, very similar. Wow. They're very, very, very similar. And always with people. the helmets. And almost always. I won't, I won't claim that every single Olmec head has a helmet on it, because mm. I think I've seen one that didn't. It's quite a while ago since yeah, I like explored the, the Olmec area. But what's fascinating about them is they are, they are supposedly the first high civilization of Central America, that they create structures on a massive scale, that you can see connections between them and the later, the later Maya. That whole mystery of the Mayan calendar was clearly inherited from the Olmecs. It wasn't something the Maya oh. made up. The Olmecs used that same symbolism. So the Mayan calendar is actually an Olmec calendar. And if we hmm. then consider the possibility that the Olmecs may just be the latest, the, the, the earliest surviving manifestation of that calendar, it could go back much further than that. Do you plan on having any debates with people that oppose these ideas? Um, well, it was interesting on your very show, Joe, to uh, yeah. to have the debate that involved uh, Michael Shermer, who's the editor of the Skeptic uh, magazine, and um, some colleague of his who came in online, yeah. who I got a bit annoyed with, um, <laughs> and and myself and uh, my great friend and colleague, the genius Randall Carlson, uh, and and um, I felt that that was a very useful uh, debate. Um, I felt that it's possibly the first time that those of us on the alternative side of the argument about history were, were given an opportunity really to put our evidence forward and, and to confront so-called skeptics. Mm. Uh, well, so-called, that's what he calls himself, uh, yeah. my, my, my Michael Shermer, with this evidence. And you know, obviously I'm biased, but I, I don't feel that he fielded the situation particularly well. I don't think mainstream archaeology came out of that looking really good. I think it came out of that looking rather ignorant and, uh, and, and uninformed. 
uh, and, and a man like Michael Shermer, who is a professional skeptic, uh, cannot begin to match the knowledge of a man like Randall Carson, who has devoted his whole life to walking the walk of the geology uh, of the end of the Ice Age in, in, in North America, and that showed. On, on, on that debate. So I think the debate was worth doing. Uh, I think it showed that the alternative side isn't just wishy-washy stuff out there on the fringes of things, that there are those of us working in this field who are using really solid in information and who are who our project is to rewrite history. And we're not going to do that with slight information. It has to be solid information. I think we had the opportunity on your show to, to say that, that that solid information is there. I'm not claiming it was a complete victory for the alternative side. Michael Shermer is a smart guy, and he put forward some good arguments too. And there were constructive aspects of that debate, which, mm. I, which I appreciated. I'd like to see much more engagement and much more positive approach. I wish the skeptics, welcome to their skepticism, but I wish they'd be less hateful, less, less full of derision, less, less despising. Well, they're so defensive with their ideas. And, and so, and so yeah. defensive with their ideas when the possibility is there for, for a constructive uh, debate. Well, what's interesting to me is that as this evidence piles up, and it seems to be continuing to pile up, as more like the the these impact sites and more of this uh, ancient civilization material gets unearthed, it's almost insurmountable. Yeah, it's almost, and this is how this is how paradigms shift. I mean, everybody's familiar with the concept of a paradigm shift, and mm -hmm. and and there's a, a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, which outlines what a paradigm shift is, where uh, an established model in some discipline of science that has been in control of people's thinking for a very long time suddenly falls apart. And it doesn't fall apart suddenly. What happens is that there's an accumulation of evidence which that model cannot explain. That paradigm cannot explain it. It seemed like a great paradigm at one point, but then it doesn't explain this. And then it doesn't explain life. Like the paradigm that says that megalithic architecture is only 6,000 years old and that the first megalithic architecture was in Malta. That can't explain the massive megalithic site of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey 5,500 years before that. It's evidence like that, the slow accumulation of evidence that the existing system cannot explain, that at the eventual point, no matter how strongly the advocates of the existing system hold on to it, no matter how determined they are in their defense, no matter what dirty tricks they may choose to deploy to undermine their opponents, sooner or later the evidence overwhelms them and the paradigm goes down and you have a new way of thinking. And that is, that is the story of, of science, and it is a story that I think, I think we're at a tipping point beautiful. in our understanding of the past of the human species. I am not saying that I am 100% right. I believe that what, what I'm doing that's worthwhile is I'm asking questions about the past that haven't been asked enough. I'm putting archaeologists on the spot and, and demanding that they explain themselves. I don't, I don't claim that I'm right. I'm offering an alternative theory, and my objective is to get people to think for themselves to think about this stuff and not to accept uh, the voice of authority as the, as the sole uh, medium of truth. That's, that's what I've tried to do. Have you had uh, any uh, archaeologists review any of this work and change their opinions? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. But what I, what I have found, uh, and I've, I found it interestingly during the research trips for America before, 
uh, is a younger generation of archaeologists who are in the field. Um, and they are quite different from the older generation of archaeologists who were running the whole scene 25 years ago. Or now we have a very different younger generation, no. a younger generation that has been exposed to open-minded thinking, um, that has been exposed to the internet, that itself as part of the general pattern of the younger generation is suspicious of authority. I'm meeting young archaeologists on sites. For example, I met a couple of really amazing young minds uh, on a site called um, Blackwater Draw. Uh, in um, uh, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, where, where the, one of the first uh, Clovis sites, the, the young archaeologists I met there were incredibly open-minded mm. and, and really willing to consider extraordinary possibilities about the past and privately admitted to me that they'd read my books. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where I get the hope. I get the hope in this young generation that is growing up with the Internet that does understand that there's a lot more out there than just what they're being taught in schools. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is this is this is where the where, where where the hope lies and it lies in in every area and it's why one of the one of the intriguing things that has happened with me and your show is an important part of this is that when I go around giving public events doing a public presentation uh, of my work the demography of the audience is, is extremely interesting. And this is true whether I'm giving the talk in Britain, whether I'm giving it in Canada, whether I'm giving it in America. Part of the audience are older people who read me in the 1990s, who got onto my work with Fingerprints of the Gods in 1995, and they've stuck with me, and they've carried on reading my work. But another part of the audience, a very big part of the audience, uh, consists to a large extent of young people, most of whom are men, but there are women amongst them as well. And what those mainly young men come up to me and say at the end of the event is, we first encountered your work on Joe Rogan's show, and it completely opened our minds. It changed. It, I've had so many young men say, this has changed my life. And then I asked myself, well, why should a different take on the past change people's lives? Why should people feel that their lives have been changed by a different take on the past? Which I add, they would not know about unless you'd had the good grace to, to bring me on, the, on, on your show. This, these ideas would not be known, but they are known because of the amazing outreach of your show. And the answer to that question, why does it, why does it change a person's life, is that once we realize that we have been misinformed about our past, that everything that we've built our idea of who we are upon and of where we're going as a culture may be founded on falsehoods and perhaps even deliberate lies, once that is realized, then all the questions about the nature of the society we live in become open. Uh, and, and people, young people are feeling the need to take an independent path, not to not to follow the path that has been set down for them uh, by, by previous generations. And in some way, and I'm very gratified to hear this, the fact that I, I'm an elder now, I'm 69 next, next birthday, the fact that I... You look great. Thank you. The fact that I, as an elder, um, have consistently pursued an independent past, uh, path, have been willing to put up with the shit that's been thrown at me uh, over the years, but have stuck to my guns and have continued to add new information to the dossier of information that I put forward. That is, and I'm encouraged to see this, that's found as inspiring by younger people. And what, what better gift could an old guy hope to leave to the world than a younger generation who feel inspired by that person's work to change the world? Well, I'm very, very thankful that I could introduce people to you because your first book that I read of you, Fingerprints of the Gods, changed my view of the world. 
I mean, I, I remember putting that book down after I was finishing, going, "Wow, like if if he is right, like this whole thing is a mess." Yeah, <laughs> a complete mess. Because our idea of who we are yeah. is very much founded in our idea of who we were, uh, and and one of I think one of the mistakes that's made in our civilization is that. Uh, we are very conceited, we're very big-headed, and we tend to review the, the, view the whole story of history as though it's a project that leads to us, that we're what it's all about. And I think what is, um, what is uh, how can I put it, uh, undermining of the existing system about a new take on uh, the past is, is, is the notion that we're not what it's all about at all. Uh, that there may have been an earlier civilization that reached a high level of advancement, perhaps different from ours, but nevertheless an advanced civilization, which was just taken out of the story completely by a global cataclysm. Uh, then we suddenly, we suddenly realize that in a way we're here accidentally, that it's not been a process that's been all about us. Uh, and, and that if we've been misinformed about how we got here, then we need to get the true information about, about what's going on. So, so these are, um, in a way, profoundly revolutionary ideas. They do, they do lead people on a path of inquiry that leads to questioning of everything. And our fears uh, that you were just discussing earlier about how soft we are in comparison to past civilizations in terms of like our ability to live off the land, that's one aspect that bothers what me, but hell? one of the big ones that bothers me is the fact it? that everything is digital. Mm. All of our information is stored on hard drives. You bet. And if that goes down, there's not much left. Your paper books and, and you know, a few thousands of years, imagine what would be left. Yeah. We would lose all of our advancement. Well, I can, I can speak to this at, at, a, at, at a personal level. There was a time when I was an excellent map reader. I, I, I could navigate anywhere with, with maps. You know, my wife Santa and I did huge journeys in Mexico back in the early 1990s in really cheap hire cars with maps. And we found our way everywhere without any problem. Today, I can hardly use a map. The skill of using a map has lapsed within me. Why? Because of GPS. Mm. GPS technology has come along and, it's, and it, it always tells me where I am. And being a bit lazy, uh, I just accept that, yeah. that, that technology. But then I uh, had caused to ask myself this just the other day, supposing GPS, supposing all those satellites go down and there's no, no GPS, is the whole, the whole industrialized human race is gonna suddenly be lost. Uh, all those Uber drivers who don't know their way from A to B and who rely entirely on their GPSs, they won't know, they won't know where they're going. And it's, and it's true with digital data. The digita digital data, unlike, unlike print data, is um, very fragile mm. uh, and requires programs in order to access and interpret it that are much more complicated than simply cracking the code of a, a lost language. Yeah, I mean, the programs vary between different phone platforms. Exactly. They vary in computer platforms. Yeah. It's just, it's so fragile and it's so, uh, I mean, I don't know if there's any precautions that have been taken place to preserve this information in case of... Like what Robert Schock described, like coronal mass ejection or something Take crazy. Take down all the satellites. Yeah. No, I don't think I don't think preparation has been made, and I don't and I don't and it's very clear that that preparation is not being made for the risk of uh, another uh, cosmic impact. Um, and again, a, a point that I'd like to make about this is that we are a, we are in a sense in a place where history can repeat itself. 
that there are certain cycles at work. Uh, the work on the comet impact 12,800 years ago ha has very clearly and specifically identified the debris trail of that comet. And that debris trail is the torrid meteor stream. And it's called the Torrid Meteor Stream because it appears to emanate from the region of the sky in which the constellation of Taurus sits. Uh, it doesn't. It's within our solar system. It's an optical illusion. The Torrid Meteor Stream is a giant complex of debris. Uh, it is 30 million kilometers wide. What you had was an original comet that might have been 100 to 200 kilometers in diameter, a small moon which fragmented and broke up into multiple, multiple parts. And those parts began to spread out along the whole orbit of the Torrid meteor stream and to widen, the whole thing widened, so it's like a giant tube of debris. And the evidence and the argument is that 12,800 years ago, several large bits of that debris fell out of the Torrid meteor stream and impacted with the Earth. The problem is that the Torrid meteor stream still exists and our planet still passes through it twice a year uh, and those passages take place in june and in november and each passage takes 12 and a half days and the same group of scientists who are who are looking at the evidence for the impacts 12,800 years ago are deeply concerned that we may face future impacts from the torrid meteor stream that there are still large objects up there this is not theory this is a fact there's a comet up there uh, called comet enki which is part of the Torrid meteor stream. It's a large fragment of the original giant comet. Comet Enki has a diameter of, I don't know, five or, five or six kilometers. There's, there's 19 recognized huge objects within the Torrid meteor stream. Calculations indicate that there may be as much as 200 asteroids within the Torrid meteor stream uh, if, of a diameter of a kilometer or more, which would have catastrophic effect if they, if they hit the Earth. And responsible astronomers regard the Torrid meteor stream as the greatest collision hazard facing mankind at the present time. And it's not something that we need to fall into despair about, because it's perfectly within the level of our technology to do something about it. What could they do? Well, to give you an example, uh, commercial interests are looking right now, and the technology is there, to mine asteroids. We can go to asteroids if the, if the commercial interest is high enough. We can go to them, we can mine them, we can extract minerals, we can bring them back to the Earth. The same technology would allow you to move asteroids or comet fragments. You don't want to blow them up with a nuke. That would be a really bad idea. That would, that would uh, turn one large object into 